You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If we haven't met, my name is Greg. I'm a, I'm a church planting resident here at Liberty. And uh, so this morning we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. If you're using one of your those uh, black hardcover Bibles will be on page 1021. So our, our words of encouragement are powerful. Words of encouragement are powerful. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Have any middle school girl tell any middle school boy that she likes his shirt. And then watch that boy wear that shirt every day for the next month. He will only ever take it off because his mom forces him to, because it smells, it's gross, she needs to do laundry. And like, Greg, you can't wear the same shirt every single day. (laughs) Totally hypothetical scenario. And you can chuckle at that and roll your eyes, but you as adults, are not all that different. A handwritten note from a close friend can turn a gloomy day into a great one. Uh, A kind word from a stranger at the grocery store can make us feel like we're walking on air. And a, hey, you know I'm proud of you, from the right person can bring a warmth to our souls because words of encouragement are powerful. The sad reality about so many of our worlds is that most of us live on a starvation diet of encouragement. We go about our days getting crumbs of encouragement rather than the feast that we were designed to eat. And we we avoid encouraging one another because it's awkward and weird and we don't want to be weird. And then we suffer under the weight of receiving little encouragement ourselves. Now, I have been at various points in my life too commanded, too instructed, too critiqued, too admonished. I have never been on any day of my life too encouraged. I'm guessing you haven't either. In fact, I don't know a single person who has. I don't even know what that would look like. Our text this week is intriguing because it is just pure encouragements. Last week in verses 7 to 11... John addressed this new commandment, a command, do this. Next week, starting in verse 15, we also immediately have commands. Do not love the world or the things in the world. This week, in verses 12 to 14, we have zero imperatives, no commands. There's nothing to do. Just pure gospel encouragement. Notice, as we read this text, how John repeats himself again and again and again. I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. And he does this to hammer home, to emphasize the point that whatever you believe about yourself, whatever you came into this room believing what is true about you this morning, I don't know what that is. Here, for sure, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, these things can be said to be true of you. And so be encouraged. Here is what is true of you. 
So we're going to read this text and we'll pray and then we'll jump in. He says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and have the word of God abiding in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Father, as we look again into your word this morning, I pray that your voice to us would be the loudest one that we hear. That the competing notions for identity, defining who we are, would fall off to the side and that we would allow your spirit to speak through John and tell us who we really are. May we be encouraged as we look upon your gospel yet again. In Christ's name, amen. So if you were paying close attention to the text that I just read, you'll notice that John outlines three different groups of people, fathers, or he goes children, and then fathers, and then young men, and then he repeats that pattern again. And so I just stole the outline of the sermon from John. We're just going to do that. First, we're going to talk about children, and then fathers, and then young men. Let's see what he says to the children first. He says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Now, when John uses the term children here, he's not referring to people like like little people, actual children. He's referring to all believers, right? This is the term that John uses endearingly to refer to all Christians. Again and again and again throughout this letter, John uses the term children to say, you have been adopted by God. He is referring to all believers. And he writes this and says, I write to you, why? Because your sins are forgiven. In saying your sins are forgiven, John makes these two massive claims. First, on the one hand, that you have sins. And second, that they're forgiven. Now, our current cultural moment has no problem, I don't think, with understanding that first claim, that there is sin, that there are categories of right and wrong, and that people transgress moral norms and break them, and that they do wrong things. Our world understands that. In fact, modern Western culture is so preoccupied with this that it seems like it's all we ever hear about. Right? Turn on any news station of your choosing, and while the term sin is rarely, if ever, used, the concept is everywhere. People know there is a right and a wrong. A few decades ago, the fear was that our culture was kind of drifting into what people called moral relativism, right? This idea that there really is no right and no wrong. And so there were books written about absolute truth, sermons preached on the objective reality of concrete ethics. But in the last few decades, honestly, the drift has gone in the opposite direction. If there is a culture prone to moral relativism, it's not ours, On any given day, the ever-angry thumbs of the Twitter mob could be after the corrupt practices of bankers on Wall Street or counties that enforce mask wearing or the war in Ukraine or 
Haley Bieber and Selena Gomez, or drag queens in libraries, or gang violence in Haiti, or whatever thing Kanye did this week. And if you're not aware, if you're not up to date on the backlash to the backlash to the backlash to the thing that just started, you're going to appear tone deaf and ignorant because if moral outrage is fire, the internet is like gasoline. And and while there are absolutely things that we can and should be morally outraged about, and there are even things that it's appropriate to use the internet to talk about, the, the speed with which we condemn, the, the lack of nuance in our tweet-sized arguments, the posture that we have toward who we view as the perpetrators, and, and the lack of a cultural category that even closely resembles anything like grace, mercy, or forgiveness, both on the right and the left, is appalling. Our, our culture, both on the right and the left, is not morally relativistic. On the contrary, we're moral fundamentalists. I would call it puritanical, but I don't want to insult the Puritans. Right? At least the Puritans, for all of their moral rigidity, law-keeping, and moral strictness, had some sort of category for grace and forgiveness. That's not true of your favorite news channel. So we know the world believes in right and wrong because they're both, both sides of the political spectrum live in constant outrage at it. And here in John 2 verse 12, he begins by saying that not only do you have these sins, they've also been forgiven. Take a moment and just think about that. In our world of incessant moral outrage, I don't think I need to convince you that you have sins. You know you have sins. You feel the deep shame over the things that you've done. Every person in this room has thought, said, or done things that they feel deep shame over. In fact, I would wager that you've all done things, we've all done things in our lives that if I were to write them out and put them on the screen here for everybody to see, you would want to walk out of this room and never see any of us again. You know you've done things wrong. So what is that thing for you? Like, What's the thing that you feel the most deep shame over? What's, what is the worst thing you've ever done? Think about it. What's that thing that you have done that you don't let yourself think about too often because you just don't know what to do with it or what category to place it in? John says, yes, you have sin. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, you are forgiven. Not in the abstract, not in some ethereal realm far off. No, 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 you're forgiven for that sin that you are thinking of now. It is gone, Paul writes in Romans 8, that there is no condemnation for the one that is in Christ Jesus. None. It is gone. Your sins are scattered as far as the east is from the west. And so it doesn't matter if you've walked into this room with the shadow of shame following you around. 
It doesn't matter if you sit there right now and it's so hard to disentangle your identity from that thing that you've done wrong. It doesn't matter if you've defined yourself by that for the past few decades. What is really true about you, who you really are, is that you are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, your basic identity is that someone is that you are someone who has been forgiven. There is no condemnation. Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish I could just take the timeline of my life and like have this like magic eraser and go back and erase some of these things that I feel horrible about. In a sense, that is what has been done for you in Jesus. It's gone. When God looks at you, he sees perfection because of his son. You're forgiven. So he looks at the little children and he says, dear children of God, all Christians, because of what you have done, that is placing your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. He then moves on to address the fathers in verse 13. And the thing that he says to the fathers, both times he addresses them. So at the beginning of verse 13 and at the beginning of verse 14, this is word for word. He writes, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now you might ask like, all right, what's going on here? Why does John just address fathers and young men? What about women? Most scholars think that when John uses the term fathers and young men here, he does not specifically have in mind males and not females, right? The Greek masculine plural often refers to all believers, not just men. And so think of Paul when he writes um, in Galatians 4 or in Romans 8, and he calls all believers sons. Or, or think again throughout, uh, throughout the New Testament, how various authors refer to all believers as brothers. This is similar to that. This is a cultural phenomenon that is not sexist or even necessarily androcentric. It's just how the masculine plural often functions in ancient Greek writing. Therefore, what John is doing is actually a common practice in ancient writing. First, he's addressing everyone with the term children, and then he's addressing the older members of the congregation by using the term fathers, and then the younger members of the congregation by using the term young men. So as you read this text, don't think males with children when you read fathers. Think older Christians. And the thing he wants to remind the more seasoned members of the Christian community is that they know him who is from the beginning. They know him who is from the beginning. Namely, they know Jesus Christ, the son of God, the uncreated one. Now, this again is interesting, right? Knowing God is the very first step you take in becoming a Christian. Why would John want to remind the older Christians in the audience that they know God? Of course they know God. They've known him for decades. And why repeat this twice? Right When he addresses children the second time at the end of verse 13, he changes the reason he writes. And when he addresses the young men at the end of verse 14, he also gives, he adds reasons more than he did in verse 13. So why for the older members of the congregation is it word for word the same? Perhaps it's because as we go on in our lives, as we learn more theology, as we walk with Christ for decades, as we study, it is easy over the years to forget our first love. It's easy 
over decades to begin caring more and more and more about the minutia of the spiritual life and forget what a privilege it is to know Christ himself. In a word, John is saying to older, more seasoned Christians, keep the main thing, the main thing. You know God. This is not unlike what often happens in a marriage. Uh, For those of you who are married here this morning, you can feel this truth. You first begin dating and you remember like being utterly infatuated with one another. You go on dates and when you see the other person, you get like butterflies in your stomach and it's your heart starts beating faster and it's hard to talk and you say the dumbest things. Every new thing you learn about that person is just wonderful and you get excited whenever they're in the room with you. And it feels like you could talk to this person for hours on end and it's just fascinating. And then you get married. And like when you get married, the love by no means dies, but it changes. And you realize that living together, while it's amazing, has certain... um, downsides. Like they set the thermostat at the most ridiculous temperature. They, they fold clothes like a caveman taught them how to do it. They get snacks out of the kitchen and they don't close the cabinets. And so for marriages to be successful, People have to come together and realize what a ridiculous truth it is that out of the 8 billion people on planet Earth, these two lives came together to dedicate their lives together and create a family. It is a precious thing to know each other. So too with Christ. John is saying, do not allow your decades of walking with Christ to callous your heart to the grandeur of knowing him. Think of this. Liberty Church, think of this. You know the God of the universe. That's insane. That's crazy. You know the God of the universe. Like, planet Earth is massive, and yet you could fit 1.3 million Earths inside our sun. And our sun, in comparison to the other stars in the universe, is just an average-sized star. Some of the larger stars, you could take our sun and fit a hundred suns inside of. And the Bible says he scatters the stars like sand. He created them by exhaling. And you know this, God. John says he existed from the beginning. That is to say, no one and nothing created him. While while you and I exist right now with our hearts beating and our lungs breathing, we are dependent, fragile, contingent realities depending on our creator for existence. He needs nothing. He needs no relationship. He has eternally existed in the joyous fellowship of the Trinity. He needs no food, drink, or shelter. He is totally independent. This is the God who spoke everything you see into existence. This building and our bodies and these chairs, everything you see, know, or think of has been created. The mountains, the sea, the galaxies, the supernovas, time, 
the laws of logic, the colors in a rainbow. All of it is contingent reality depending on this creator whom you know for existence. This is the God who knows everything. While we stretch our puny brains, reading our books, listening to our podcasts, watching our documentaries, just to learn a few little things, this God has never had to learn anything new and has never been perplexed or confused by any problem in the universe. If you were to take all of the libraries throughout all time, throughout the entire globe, and put all of that information together in one place, it would barely scratch the surface of his infinite wisdom. And this is the God you know. This is the God who became a human being, who clothed himself in skin and bones, who set up this kingdom on earth and waged war on the darkness, casting out demons, healing the sick, clothing the naked, bringing good news to the poor. This is the God who was crucified for you, who bore the full extent of his own wrath for you so that you could know him. This is the God that you know. You know him. You know him who is from the beginning. How long has it been since the the hairs on the back of your neck stood on end because of the the weight and significance of this reality. That you know God. That's crazy. You know him and he knows your name. And John repeats this to the older members of the church as if to shake us all by the shoulders and say, awaken from your spiritual slumber. Be amazed. You know the one who is from the beginning. So he addresses children. Then he addresses the older members of the congregation. And finally, he addresses young men. Right? As it is with the term fathers, by using the term for young men, John most likely doesn't have exclusively a male audience in mind, but is referring to the younger members of the congregation. And he says to them in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one you could sum up what John is saying to the younger members of the church like this. You are victorious. So he first tells them that they're strong. Now notice here that this is not like probably referring to their max bench press or their ability to bicep curl. This is a different kind of strength, namely a strength that is defined by that next line that comes from the word of God living in them that allows them to overcome the evil one. Perhaps he reminds the younger audience of this because being a Christian in your younger decades is especially difficult. Just because, in part, puberty is difficult. And trying to go through puberty and follow Jesus is a wild ride. Young people especially are bombarded on all sides with what feels like an overwhelming pressure to give in to all kinds of sin. At what other age do you feel this extreme pressure to fit in? In what other stage of life do you crave more deeply the approval of others? It's no secret that sex, lust, approval of others, coarse joking, irrepressible anger, and others have an especially controlling presence in the younger decades of our lives. So much so that for many, the battle with sin can feel hopeless. 
Like just person, like I remember times in high school for me when I was just wrecked with guilt over behavior patterns in my life that I was frustrated with, that I couldn't seem to beat, that I just remember sitting there thinking, I am going to wrestle with this forever. It's never going to go away. And John writes to young people in the church saying, hey, because the word of God lives in you, you are strong. Because of what Christ has done for you on the cross, you have already overcome the evil one. And so take heart, press on. And some of us need to hear that once more this morning. The fight against sin in our lives can be exhausting. I am not the only one that knows how it feels to sit on the edge of my bed with my head in my hands thinking, I can't believe I messed up like that. Again, I'm going to wrestle with this forever. If you're feeling that way this morning, God wants to remind you through this text, you are strong because his word lives in you. Through Jesus Christ, you have already overcome the evil one. God does not leave us over there with our sin to to try to muster up the self-control so we can do it ourselves. He has given us his spirit. He has indwelled us with the spirit and placed his word within us. Through Jesus Christ, we have already overcome the evil one. You are strong. And so John encourages his readers, first, they're forgiven. Second, they know God. And third, they are victorious. So Liberty Church, whatever you came in here believing about yourself today, these things are true of you. By the Holy Spirit, John is reminding us that we can know ourselves. We too, by the Holy Spirit, are forgiven. We too know God. We too are strong and victorious. Regardless of how you feel, these things are true for sure of you. And so be encouraged. Take heart. Press on. You are forgiven. You know God and you are victorious. So may we, as those forgiven by God, may we live like it. May we, as those who know God, be amazed by it. And may we, who have the word of God dwelling in us, act like those who are strong, because we have the power to overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, we admit this morning that if it were not for your son, we wouldn't be able to say with a straight face that we are strong. If it were not for your son, we wouldn't be able to say that we are forgiven. We wouldn't be able to say that we have overcome the evil one. And if it were not for your son, we would not be able to say that we know God. So as we look again upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, would your spirit come Would he live in us? Would he reassure us of these truths? That we are forgiven, that we know God, and because of the gospel that we are strong. It's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.